this is your host, Becky Sanders. Welcome to A Virtual View, where we discuss healthcare, telehealth, and everything in between. And today, we're talking with Clay Ferris with Mostly Medicaid. So Clay, this is kind of a, a turnabout for you. I was on your podcast series not too long ago, and now I get to interview you. So please tell our listeners about yourself and how you came to be in your current position with Mostly Medicaid. Sure. And thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. It's an honor to be here. Thank you for connecting me and, and, and asking my thoughts in front of your audience because you did such a great job of doing that for hours. So thank you for doing thank that you. and for having me. So my name is Clay Ferris and I usually tell people I eat, sleep and breathe Medicaid so you don't have to. That's usually how I explain it. I've been doing this about 20 years and the easiest way to kind of understand what I do is to tell a quick story of how I, how I started doing it. I did a public health program 20 something years ago fresh out of Hopkins, went and worked for Medicare and for a couple of years in the Medicare coverage and analysis group. Loved that. I'm from Alabama originally and then was trying to get closer back home. So I moved to Atlanta and worked for the state of Georgia in their audits group and, and technically was kind of running a, a SWAT team for the CFO of Medicaid at the time, Carrie Summers, brilliant one of the smartest people I've ever met in terms of Medicaid financing, which that's everything about Medicaid. And so I would track down all these questions for her. She'd say, Clay, go find out how we're setting reimbursement policy for this. and Tell me how we ought to be doing it, how other states are doing it, and come back and write a report, you know, in three months or whatever. So I'd learn all this stuff about Medicaid. And I, I love to write as well. And so I started writing this newsletter back to my old public health friends. And I'm like, hey, Medicaid is so very different from what we learned in like two hours in a public policy class, you know, back at Hopkins. I'm like, here's all the things I'm learning. And so I'd write this newsletter like on a monthly basis. Next thing I know, it's getting passed around. There's a couple thousand people reading it. And this was in the early 2000s. And then soon after that, the conferences call and say, hey, would you come talk? I'm like, sure, whatever. You know, so you got, and you, as you know, as soon as you talk in front of a group of people, you're an expert. Whether you have oh, yeah. any idea what you're talking about or not, everybody thinks you're an That's expert, right. you know? And so I did that for a couple of years, you know, speaking to the conferences on, on whatever. And then people start coming up after you talk and they're like, hey, do you do consulting for whatever? I'm like, sure I do. And so, <laughs> so anyway, it kind of snowballed into consulting slash content creation business. And that's kind of where we are today. So most people know us through our webinars, my newsletters, other videos we do, other thought leadership things that were conferences. Before COVID, I was at a conference 10 times a year, you know, chairing a lot of different ones. But we also do consulting for what we think of as the verticals of the space. So that's us. I mean, we think we have, as far as the focused on the people who work in the Medicaid space, we think we have the largest audience. We have about 10,000 people working in health plans, government, technology companies, that type of thing. I love it. I've got an amazing team of people that I get to work with that really enjoy doing good work in this space. That's quite a following that you have. I think your following is about three times our following. So. Ah. <laughs> well, and, and depends, well, you've been you giving know, it longer too. So True, true. That 10,000 number depends on how we look at it. You know, it's not 10,000 people waiting on every word that we put out, but they are consuming something we put out each year. We very much focus on outreaching and engaging and calling people and all that kind of stuff. We don't just have 
a list of emails. You know, we, mm-hmm. we are actively calling them about certain things. And it's an interesting balance because we're consulting, but we also have this audience and we have this different voice, this audience that trusts us. It can be challenging because you don't want to always just be selling stuff to your audience. Over the last 18 months or so of the COVID-19 pandemic, have you still been participating virtually as a speaker in conferences and that kind of stuff? I have, and I can't wait to get back to physical ones. That's not the right option for me just yet. When all this started to happen around, I guess in the United States, around March, February, March, Mm -hmm. I think we were all kind of in shock for a minute. And then around April, I actually sent out a pretty extensive letter to my audience. I said, hey, we are trying to figure, just like all y'all, we're trying to figure out what we're doing what this means for us, how we do the right things right now. And we kicked off all these listening sessions with different parts of our audience. And then in May, I told my team, we're going to do a four-day virtual event all about Medicaid and COVID, and it's going to be easy. (laughs) And uh, what are you talking about? I'm like, no, trust me, it's going to be great. It was eight hours for four days. We actually broke it up over two weeks to, to your question about virtual speaking. And you know, that was back before everybody was sick of all the virtual everything. And, and it provided, I think, an opportunity for people just to learn. They really needed that. They needed to learn what was going on. It provided a, a communications platform. We had a lot of health plan execs talk. We had a lot of government execs talk just about what they were doing. It helped them get the word out. And so that actually spawned a whole other push for content. I use this as an opportunity to create content that I wanted to do. I'm big on interviews. That's how I learn. And that's how you and I got connected as well. And so I just really leaned heavily into that. I've really been doing everything we can virtual because there's a lot of people that, like me, that aren't traveling again yet or that sometimes the states aren't letting people travel right now. So we put on roughly monthly what we ended up calling our Medicaid never-ending conference. So so we look at it as this, this ongoing virtual thing. And, of course, I speak at different events and that sort of thing. So that's a long answer to your question. You know, have I been doing this virtually the past 18 months? Really have. And I actually couldn't stand, personally, as technology oriented as I could, I could not stand, you know, Zoom meetings and web cameras and all that kind of, but now I, I can't imagine going back now. I love it. Mm-hmm. I'm right there with you. Here in Indiana, we had a little bit of a window in June and July of 2021 where we actually held a couple of conferences in mm-hmm. person. And it was weird I've gotten so used to speaking to an audience while seated behind a computer screen. It was weird to be able to get up and talk and really see people's facial expressions, but I'm looking forward to doing some more of that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) When you talk about your clients, you've talked about health plans, you've talked about government entities. For your contract work, where do most of your clients come from? So we have a couple different segments. I would say the biggest ones are Medicaid health plans. I don't know how much your audience is familiar with that, but that's a big part of our space. Plans that have been engaged by the state to, to deliver the Medicaid promise to members. Technology companies that are either building very large claims payment systems or care management systems to sell to health plans or to states. So in terms of health plans and tech, and right behind that is government agencies themselves. So we have a lot of policy development support that we'll do for that. And then some work with different types of providers, some work with pharmaceutical companies. There's a huge learning curve for the Medicaid subject matter expertise. It's really challenging because it's so state by state and it's a very complicated regulatory and as you know, and requirements environment. And so, but I would say the bigger ones are health plan, government technology. It's been a lot of fun because once people realize they can use our 
Medicaid subject matter expertise, we can apply it to almost any business problem. I've had companies have us review business plans for building projects based on because the because the, the physician's saying he's going to make so much money on Medicaid revenue. I mean, that's that's an unusual one. But but anyway, those would be the main ones. But we've been doing more and more with local governments, with county governments, especially if you look at the just the the huge and long time coming focus on behavioral health. And that's where a lot of that stuff will happen at the county governments. But health plan, government, uh, state, local, federal government, and technology are probably our biggest ones. That really leads us into my next question for you. Thinking back, you know, 24 months, whatever, what have you seen over COVID-19, over this pandemic, I mean, everything in our lives has been turned upside down, but what have you specifically seen as far as trends across the nation in Medicaid reimbursement? Right now, we're kind of all looking back, right? Because the mm-hmm. question we had, when I say we, I'm thinking about in the Medicaid space and policymakers and the vendors themselves that sell solutions and health plans, because this is a very timely conversation because there's a lot of, okay, we're now entering year three which I know how dismal that sounds. But yes, we're, you know, we've been doing this for 18, 20 months, and soon we're going to, what stays, what goes, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so that makes us think of the trends. And I think, I think the big trends are um, hands down behavioral health. This mm-hmm. made a ton of sense even before. And you, and you had states kind of loosening up policies to be able to do various talk therapy for various groups, particularly around substance abuse. So I think we'd already made a lot of progress that set us up to really leap forward in behavioral health specifically, including some prescribing things. There's a lot of good solutions out there, peer-to-peer supports. But I think you got to start with behavioral health for sure as what's really been the leap forward in the Medicaid space. Now, we're we're probably going to touch on these things in a couple different places, but I think one of the other bigger trends, and this was driven by the primary care, and I don't think this is limited to Medicaid, but we just kind of bulldozed through the barriers that used to be on, say, Clay's couch being place of service for the originating site, right? I mean, that used to be a huge deal as a barrier to all this, but once you had primary care providers who weren't going to have any volume if you didn't do this pretty quickly, you saw, okay, yeah, we can do this. You know, we can do this consult in this way. There's a whole lot of questions around what's still clinically appropriate, what's not. Okay, how do we start sorting out fraud? You know, there's a lot of concerns over that right now. I'm not sure if that's getting at what Mm -hmm. you want to get at, but I think those are the things that I think of right now. But we really are just kind of starting to ask this question. I think we talked about this when you interviewed me about the historical perspective of Medicare being the first to pay for telehealth reimbursement, and then Medicaid followed, and then finally the primary, um, you know, commercial insurance followed, and it's really right. been flipped on its end, right. um, and going the other direction now, where most states, at least here in our region, our four states of Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, and Ohio, have already codified. Okay, this is what we're doing right. after the PHE. Right. And now we're waiting on Medicare to decide in the 2022 physician fee schedule. We'll probably see that in December, what they're going to do. Yeah, I think there's been some big examples. The ones you gave, uh, New York several weeks ago announced that everything they did under a temporary status for telehealth, they're going to make that permanent. You know, mm-hmm. North Carolina pays at parity right mm-hmm. now. 
for for telehealth not not for just telephonic but you know if it's beyond just the phone call if it's video and this whatever at parity which was i don't even think people were dreaming of that <laughs> you know b- before all this a lot of this has to do with i think the nature of medicaid you know a state mm-hmm. can move faster than national medicare policy it also has to do with the population you know mm-hmm. we've got so much more chronic, severe, so many, if you're not in the Medicaid space, you don't realize like how much challenge there is with illness burden for what we think of as like the traditional Medicaid population. So I think there's good reasons for that, but I do, I mean, I don't know of any state that sort of held on to anything resembling the previous restrictive model. And I, and it, it did flip it. I mean, before this, it, you would find a state here and there that maybe there had been like a legislator advocate that would try to get a couple of things done through telehealth. Like we would see little, mm-hmm. you know, a few things here and there, like a small service right around like, I know states where lactation consultants have been able to do telehealth for a mm-hmm. while, or maybe some speech therapy or whatever, but that was not the norm. And it was unusual because you had, it was like, wait a minute, why is Medicare leading on this? But I do think it's flipped and I think that's going to remain the case. Mm-hmm. But, but I think, I mean, just speaking from personal experience as a, and everyone that I know that's commercially insured, I think we all like it now. It's, I mean, do I really need to drive 30 minutes to have that, you know, mm-hmm. specialist concept. Not really, just to talk about the labs, you know. Anyway, that's that's, that's a long-winded mm-hmm. answer. You'll get a lot of those from me, but it has been interesting to see the flip and who who's yeah. leading this. It really has been. Now, there's a, an interesting thing. I'm curious, since I focus all of my policy knowledge either on Medicare or on our four states, there's something really interesting in Indiana law that passed this year that says if the patient is in a place where other people can hear them during their telehealth session, then the patient waives all rights to privacy, basically okay. to HIPAA. Right. Have you seen that anywhere else? I have not, but it doesn't, it doesn't, number one, there's so, even as much as I do eat, sleep, and breathe, I miss a ton. I, what it makes me think of is it, there is a general move to, lessen some barriers mm-hmm. for for plans in particular but but any state to deliver it so while at first glance while at first hearing you know i want to say oh wait a minute that sounds like maybe that's not necessarily the greatest thing in the world however i think probably what that really does is make it easier to do those telehealth visits like there's a lot of stuff going on with i don't know how much you track the text messaging for healthcare oh, stuff yes mm-hmm. but you know the tcpa the consumer protected the one that says the do not call all that kind of stuff that's actually been a really bad barrier to do patient stuff, you know, through mm-hmm. texting, like mm-hmm. they want it. And there, there's certain markets like in California where some folks have gotten their, their advocate, they, they've helped change like state regs that make it easier to do that kind of stuff. So to answer your question, I have not heard of that. I, I'm now intrigued in that and I'll, I'll look into that. But my first guess would be it's actually to make it easier, not to make it like less safe for the patient privacy or whatever. You were talking about the Medicaid population. We've had the opportunity recently to talk with the Georgia WIC program and then mm-hmm. work with the Ohio WIC program and also the Michigan WIC program and encouraging them to move away from just phone calls to using video conferencing when they're working with their clients. And then there's a lot of different programs out there that have 
nutritional handouts, you know, like an app on your phone that you're like, well, you know, how, how do I cook XYZ healthy? You know, how do I make fried chicken that isn't fried? Those yeah. types of things. So there's, there's so much that is being presented to us in an electronic format today. And, and also if we want to talk a little bit about broadband access, I mean, those are the things that I heard about so much is, well, you know, we've got this Medicaid population, they don't have the broadband in their homes to support video conferencing. Therefore, right. we need to do an audio only call and then right. all of the policy issues that followed with that. I think that last part is is the easier one to conceptualize, but I also want to talk about interoperability, not in a wonky kind of way, but how it makes certain things possible around member education or patient education, because mm -hmm. that's that's mm -hmm. that's really what we're talking about. But and it's a big conversation we're having in the Medicaid space right now, particularly in the Medicaid plan space. You know, the broadband space. I mean, I think that is, although we almost everyone you talk to will still talk about you know, a really recalcitrant digital divide, but at least that's something like, okay, we can write a check for that, right? We can build out infrastructure. I mean, you got into some great stuff about that in, in the discussion you and I had. We've got the emergency broadband benefit. We can put some more money on that kind of thing. I'm less worried about the complexity of that solution as I am about the finance. And I think we've made progress mm -hmm. on that. And I certainly think the urgency is now accepted by almost everybody because of COVID and just the, the renaissance or maybe the Maybe not the rebirth, but the birth really of telehealth. But I think even you know if you if you sort of magic wand it and everybody's got a great data plan, right, and and a great phone that can do everything, I think you still and this applies to anybody, but particularly people with chronic conditions or or people that don't have the same health literacy as you and I or whatever, we still say what is all the information available to them and is it actually useful. You know, like, can they use it in different kind of ways? And I think without going into too much detail, you know, assuming your audience is somewhat familiar with the interoperability rule and requirements and that kind of stuff, this is big on the minds of health plans right now. And states, right now, we're just kind of coming out of the, okay, well, here's how we're meeting and complying with the interoperability rule. But now there's this bigger question, okay, what are the possibilities and what are the risks? Because you've got this third-party app piece in there. I think the real possibility is health literacy, health education. I mean, you mentioned... How do you make fried chicken without frying it? My recommendation is you don't do that. That's coming. That's coming. <laughs> that's coming from Birmingham, Alabama. I mean, I do it in an air fryer, but it's just not the right. same as Mama's fried chicken. But there's all types of things that can be made possible with technology. But I still think we have a long way to go to helping, say, Clay member understand his lab values. You know, in a way mm -hmm. that he's actually going to act on it. So. Again, I kind of yeah. rambled this into somewhere else, but I, I think activating the member to do something with all this information is something that weighs mm -hmm. heavily on. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, there's a lot of talk about health equity, a lot of talk about translating information right. in brochures or right. insurance plan documents into various languages. And I think we've got a lot of room to grow there. I agree. A big thing in the Medicaid space is community, like health fairs and stuff. And so those mm -hmm. actually are not happening like they used to because mm -hmm. of the pandemic. But that would normally be a place where I'd started to see there's some really cool work being done by uh, a couple of folks in the space about just almost doing a crash course in biology and anatomy at these things. Mm -hmm. You know, grab a diabetic and be like, hey, here's what's going on in your body. And you've got like a mannequin mm -hmm. or whatever. I think I learned more and more each year 
about what those of us in the healthcare space kind of assume is common knowledge. Yeah. It's important. It's not just interesting things. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I mean, it guides, it guides our decisions and our behaviors. Mm-hmm. I think about this a lot too. You know, someone who has grown up without insurance of any kind, it's not part of their culture to go to the dentist every six months or right. to go to the eye doctor once a year right. or have a annual checkup. And I think that's really where we need to go next. There's all kinds of county health ranking reports and obesity reports and statistics around chronic care management and the chronic disease. And you see where certain states or certain counties are much higher and others are much lower. And I know we're seeing this here in Indiana. We're seeing an investment in public health dollars that are unprecedented in our state. And I think it's really going to help us. I hope you know, in two years from now that we see that our health rankings are a lot better than they are today. I think there's multiple reasons to be hopeful on this. You know, keeping in mind that you're talking about just generational patterns, right? Yes. You know, we think like if I'm sitting here in Alabama and I think about, wow, we're at the bottom of the list on obesity, or what, but still most of the nation struggles with this kind of stuff. But I think right now, COVID itself has actually brought a lot of attention to things that are not COVID. You know, the comorbidities mm-hmm. that really just go right alongside, particularly with mortality and terrible outcomes. And you're right, there's a ton of public health monies that have flooded in and that are going to continue to flood in, particularly out of the American Rescue Plan. And I think Medicaid will continue to be the the financing vehicle for mm-hmm. this next push. So I'm hopeful because I think there's a new focus and there's a new awareness that you know, it leads to really bad things, particularly with other diseases, comorbidities, various things. Medicaid is where your diabetics are for the most part, you know, in terms of your big issues. Though. Any chronic condition, you name it, that's where it is. I think the things that are working against the optimism, besides just who really wants to change their behaviors, I think there's a whole other trust issue that has just crippled efforts in the healthcare system right now, particularly in Medicaid, when we think about things like vaccination, that kind of stuff. Right now, health plans are not trying to get Clay member to improve his HbA1c. They're trying to get him to take the shot. But I do, I do agree, and I, and I do try to look for the silver linings. Like one of my questions now to interviewees is, what are three good things that have come out of the pandemic? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would, I would put what you're kind of getting at in that. I, I think public health, for the most part, has maybe reclaimed a space in the broader discussion, certainly Mm -hmm. in the budgetary discussion. Speaking about, again, Medicaid policy, what are the most frequent questions you get in your day-to-day job about Medicaid policy? Policy in general, you know, there's a there's a couple of really big ticket items happening right now. There's a lot of new home and community-based services monies with the American Rescue Plan, as well as others that are in uh, different budget bills that we're expecting to happen. When will the public health emergency be declared over? And, you know, I people don't like my answer to that, <laughs> but but that's a question I get a lot. What, what will the impact of that be on enrollment? And that's a whole other, whole other mm-hmm. question. I think, you know... It, Outside of the big policy items, I think the other ones I get are around the technology side is what's going to be the role of interoperability, what's going to be the opportunity, and then what stays, what goes. As we start to wrap up here, I want to switch the tables on you a little bit. I know, you know you're all about Medicaid, but, but obviously have to look at Medicare a little bit too. In some of the statistics that I've seen, there's been a really high usage of urban Medicare 
telehealth. And part of that's because of you know, the barriers that came down, the geographic barriers. Right. Do you have any thoughts on that? I, I do. Uh, and also, when we were doing the prep, I got the question I asked that my team member of mine, their thoughts too. So I, got, I have some thoughts on that. I mean, the first one is I think Medicare was somewhat nimble in removing barriers in the supplemental benefit letter clarification or whatever that happened in the very beginning. One of our longstanding clients is a large national network. They send nurses into the home. And a whole mm -hmm. lot of it is related to Medicare assessments and stuff like that. And so they were like, hey, what does this mean? But pretty quickly, actually, I feel like CMS uh, did a good job of, of kind of removing some of those barriers. I do a lot of work just in my personal life in nursing homes and stuff, too. When I think about the profile of who I would have in my mind as a typical Medicare beneficiary today, they're going to be the ones who've been more wary throughout the pandemic mainly as the most vulnerable group. I mean, there's a reason we vaccinated this, you know, this mm -hmm. age group first, all that kind of stuff. And so they're going to be more worried about interacting and they're going to take every advantage of opportunities for not just telehealth, but food delivery or takeout or, you know, curbside. I mean, same for me. I mean, I don't know that I ever want to go back to not using Instacart. I think they are also more technology savvy than we give them credit for. And we do the same thing with Medicaid members. I think we stick in our minds this idea of, oh, you know, Medicare members don't really know how to use smartphones. You know, maybe we still have like jitterbug commercial. You remember those like phones with oh, the yeah. giant, which I, I thought those were cool. I hope, hopefully they're still making those with the giant buttons and stuff. I think it's a combination of do think Medicare was faster than I would have expected to, to help change some regs to make it easier for, for providers to get paid to do some things, even telephonically with telehealth. And I think the members themselves, rightly so, are more cautious. And in the urban environment, that make, just makes more sense just because of population density. And I, I think they know more than we give them credit for about how to do some of this stuff. Well, Clay, I want to thank you so much for your time today and being on with us. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to A Virtual View. I've been your host, Becky Sanders. You can find more information about today's episode in the show notes below. If you would like to support our podcast, please rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. If you've got any questions or topics you'd like us to discuss, please email us at info at UMTRC or through the form found in the show notes below. I'd also like to give a special thanks to Josh Rodriguez and Francis Fitzgerald for scoring our podcast and to our executive producer, Caroline Yoder, and our audio video editor, Tristan Yoder. The content and conclusion of this podcast are those of Becky Sanders as the program director of the UMTRC and should not be construed as the official policy of, nor position of, nor should any endorsements be inferred by HRSA, HHS, or the U.S. government. Thanks for listening and have a great day.